Welcome to the Real Freedom Podcast, episode one, with yours truly, Ryan Weimer. To kick things off for our very first episode, I have none other than my good friend and COO of Offer Now Idaho, Mr. Corey Miller. Corey, how are you? Doing great. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate the invite on for podcast number one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We are excited to kick things off with this first episode. No pressure. Uh, it has to be absolutely perfect. So um, no, make we'll, sure you we'll have it. everything totally then. dialed in. Okay. <laughs> Real Freedom Podcast, we have a theme here where we want to keep it real right off the get, right off the jump. So my first question to you is, what is your most beautiful failure? Oh, that's an interesting way of phrasing that. Most beautiful failure. Yeah. I would say for me, my biggest failure uh, was not realizing how to go all in and commit. And when I take that back, I would say it's actually my time spent at the School of Mines uh, where, you know, we played football together. And I wouldn't say that I didn't work hard. I just didn't realize the level of dedication that it would have taken for me to be good or great at what I was doing. And it was so much above what I saw other people just because their skill level is better. I just wasn't a good, as good of an athlete. And I didn't realize back then because I had the mentality of being really a, a jack of all trades, master of none, but decent at everything that in order to be really great at something, I was going to have to throw myself at it all in. And I didn't realize that back then. So I would say that's probably my most beautiful failure and how that's helped shape my perspective moving forward. Okay. So what about that was a failure though? I never started a game at School of Mines. I was left out and right bench most of the time, which uh, leads to a lot of effort for not a whole lot of personal reward. Okay. It's interesting you went the athletic route with that because, you know, we all have physical limitations, right? None of us were ever going to be in the NFL. So yeah. it's interesting you chose a, a physical failure and not something in like your childhood or business world. Why is that? I've never dedicated my life and put four years of effort into anything without seeing reward for it, mm. except for that. And the mental battles one has to go through to not feel like they're succeeding and still push through is tough. And that's like what it was for me. It became a grind until about the last year when I was able to change my mindset and view the benefits of what I've learned. But during that period of time, it sucked to not see success. It sucked to see failure on a day-to-day-to-day basis, especially when I knew I was outworking the people that I was competing against and still not seeing it. Mm. So what kept you going? Because I think... This is really going to be a theme of a lot of the guests that we interview, honestly. What was the why in order to overcome deep, gut-wrenching failure like that, see no reward for elongated periods of time? There has to be a deeper why or something connecting you with your actions that allow you to keep going. And I'm curious what that was for you. Yeah, I was just raised not to give up. 
and I'd never experienced failure to that level before. I'd never experienced something where through just consistent action, it didn't end up with a good result. And I think that is actually one of the cool things to change the topic just a little bit about business is that as long as you keep in the game, like a football season is finite. A football season, you have a certain number of games and you have a defined beginning and a defined end of every season. And that is not the case. You may have seasons during business, but you're not going to have that finality to hitting a mile marker that's true success or true failure. It's yeah, all just part I, of the roller coaster. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of parallels to that in life, right? Almost everything we go through in life is about how much failure can you endure? How much short-term pain can you endure for long-term gain? What kind of long-term gain, especially like in year three or four, where you're like, not only am I outworking these people on a daily basis, but I'm outworking these people on a yearly basis, yet I'm not going to see the results. Like what kept you going through that? I think back to, there's always like little pivotal things that happen. And uh, one of which was at the end of, I think it was our junior year. And at the end of our junior year, we had kind of had like a senior walk around where everybody like goes and just says, hey, thanks, appreciate, you know, you being on the team and just shakes the hand of everyone who's an underclassman. And I had two different people who were played my same position who like stopped and just said like, whatever it is, whatever it takes, don't give up. It's worth it. And when I heard that, it was like, okay, this is going to suck. Like there's probably going to be periods of time that I don't <laughs> like what I'm going through. Yet like the reward is is less about the personal achievement and more about the relationships and like knowing that you can go through that and come out on the other side as a collective and that you helped. Like the best thing I ever did for that team was I helped boost the GPA. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> that you did. That you did. <laughs> so, um, do you remember what the team average was? By the way, it was no, uh, it was something in the threes, but I don't know what it was. Okay, all right. <laughs> so there you go. Were, were you academic all conference? One or two years, I can't quite remember. So okay, right on. So guys, for those of you that don't know, just to give a little bit of the backstory, so both Corey and I played football at Division Two Colorado School of Mines, who shout out at the time of this filming this episode are now ranked number one in the country for the first time mm -hmm. ever. It's a massive accomplishment. All engineering school academics absolutely suck there. Athletes get no special treatment. If you're on the road or you miss classes or tests, like it's on you to figure out how to make it up. You don't get like these most division one programs. You get training table, all the food you can eat, you get massage therapists, you get tutors that are assigned to you. I mean, you get state of the art, whatever you ask, right? You're there to play football at Mines. Ironically, even though they're now number one in the country in division two, you're there to go to school and get a degree because it has the, the top starting salary at a college because it's all engineering. So just to give you guys that context, like our entire time at Colorado School of Mines was brutal, but it did have that ultimate and I'm sure you can attest to this, Corey, it felt like we were all in it together. When it's that challenging, I don't know if you felt this way, like when it's just kind of hard, then you're not, like a lot of your friendships and a lot of your bonds are surface level. It felt like when we were at Mines that 
just because of the, you get your teeth kicked in on a daily basis, failing tests. Literally, I remember running from practice <laughs> to go take our nightly common hour, two hour exams. Let's go take a physics test. And you're like all sweaty. You don't even get to shower. You're like walking to the test five minutes late. Your mind is everywhere. All these other students have hours to prepare before the test. I mean, I just wanted to give everybody that context because there's a certain type of individual that goes to minds. And I think just based on that mind's experience, how do you think that that's translated to the real world, both the good and bad, the corporate world? Uh, let's start with the good piece. And I would say this of anybody who goes through a rigorous program, whether it's uh, engineering or medical field, is that what it's teaching you is how to persevere. It's really teaching you how to solve problems. In our case, it did help by teaching us how to collaborate because we couldn't all figure it out ourselves. So we had to learn how to work together. And I think that translated coming out into, at least for me in my first career, which was, it made it, everything seem easy. Like we had already gone through the hard part. And so the actual work in the professional world of eight or seven to five or 6 p.m., that was normal. Like that was easy. And everyone else seemed like they weren't really putting in either as much effort or it was a lot easier to stand out is probably the better way to put it. It was a lot easier to stand out by putting in what I felt like was less effort than I was used to. Dude, that's such a good point. I can remember, I'm sure you felt this way too, like at your first summer internship and then getting your first job in the real world. I remember thinking, they pay me how much to do this? This is way easier than school. Yes, 100%. 100%. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's it's so interesting. I think. How much do you think this is nature or nurture, though? Like when you're childhood and you're you're raised with a certain set of values. Talk that, about that, that. That is a good question. It's a bit of both, in my opinion. And I say that because I have other family members, other brothers, and not all of us had the same initial oomph. And part of it is because of the expectations that were put on each person. And even though we might have grown up in the same household, I mean, I know you have siblings too, and none of your siblings are identical to you or have maybe the same mindset. And that is developed over time. What I would say is, I guess, as I get older, the more I feel that at least through your college age, early 20s, a lot of it is the upbringing you were in, the advantages you got, and then how hard were you pushing? Like, what were the expectations set upon you? And then how did you rise or not rise to meet those? And then as we get older, like I'm starting to develop more of the perspective that once you're into your mid, late 30s and on, the entirety of your life is in your control. It should have been. For the last 10 years, you got to make whatever your life is, good or bad. And in that case, people have completely reinvented themselves in their 20s and 30s. I kind of wanted to phrase that in two different ways because it doesn't always seem like, yes, you can be dealt a great hand or a crappy hand, but if you stay in the game long enough, you can still win. Yeah. I think that's what's so addicting about business, right? Is there's no physical limitations. The people that stay in the game inevitably win. If your time horizon is an infinite game, you can't be beat in the game of business. What are your thoughts on college? My wife and I have this conversation pretty frequently, which is like, <laughs> do you think our kids are going to go to college? And our answers change. And I, I, I don't know if they will, simply because if the cost of college continues to accelerate disproportionately to the income you can generate from it, it may not be a benefit. 
And there's so many life lessons one can learn by getting good education and good exposure that are not related to college. Yet you will develop lifelong friendships, relationships, learn about yourself, get out on your own. There's a lot of benefits of doing that route and expanding your mindset. So I guess it would just really depend on what the person wants to do and if they see a tangible benefit from that decision, like going in. Who do you think that responsibility lies on? Because that's kind of always been the case, right? And now student debt during COVID was temporarily postponed. Uh, the interest in payments, but now it's back online. People are going to start start having to pay again, and we're going to see the effects of that in the economy. But it's kind of always been that way, right? If you're not in a high-paying profession, why would you go to college? This is the fundamental problem, right? When you're 17, 18 years old, I was 17 when I graduated. How in the heck are you supposed to know what you're supposed to invest in yourself for the rest of your life for it. Just the, the whole concept of it doesn't make any sense. I think a lot of it comes down to your parents and what their education level was and what their perspective is. And, and I'll take it back to maybe like my wife's family, like my wife's parents both went to college and her dad was able to pay for a semester of college by working at a grocery store as a bagger during that time. Now think about that. If that pays for all of your college, the opportunity cost isn't that high. The potential reward of going and getting an engineering degree or getting anything else significantly outweighs the cost of that education. When we got into college, we came in with a generation who had just experienced that, who now view that as the gold standard to a higher, better education, as more jobs are probably requiring it. And so I think over our generation, things are going to switch. In 18 years from now, I have a feeling that it'll be a different perspective on on college. And so if, if I'm 17 years old right now, my parents hopefully are having a real tough conversation with me about what's my plan afterwards. What do I want to do? What do I want to get into? And maybe is there something else that I might be just good at because they've seen me grow up and they know that, great, I could be a great tradesman and have a killer life. And yeah. maybe that's my, my better route. Yeah. It feels like a lot of people go to college because it's the popular thing to do and it's not a financially it's not a financial based decision. And it's not, you know, I'll say for myself when I went to college, I was very strong-willed about wanting to go where I went and I think it had a great return on investment. At the same time I could have gone to an in-state college and the difference was about $25,000 a year. Huge, huge difference. Now, if I was to be a 17-year-old and truly go by the numbers of what I thought my initial job would be here versus there, I probably would have made the logical decision to go to the in-state school and pursue an engineering degree there, even though if it may have had a slightly lower starting salary. But what I would have missed by that is the opportunity that was provided by going to a school that had more opportunity outside of Idaho that I didn't, I wasn't exposed to. I don't know if there's a right, right solution or decision ever. It's just there's certainly a higher opportunity cost now than there was 20 years ago. You're growing up in Boise, then you go to Colorado School of Mines, you get this engineering degree, then what? What happens to Corey? 
Yeah. So then we uh, stayed in Colorado and started working for an oil and gas company. That was a place I wanted to be. It was big projects, big money, cool industry, um, had some great perks to it. So I ended up working for a company called Noble Energy from the time I got out of college. So I had a couple of internships in that field with a different company called Baker Hughes, got out and then worked with Noble in Denver, Colorado, living downtown for a couple of years, uh, which was a really great spot and worked that for just about eight years. Most of my stuff I was doing is stuff based in Colorado. Great experience, great exposure. And over that period of time, you actually reached out and said, hey, what do you think about a rental property? And we were probably, what, five, six years into the career. You'd already left Denver. You were you were out in San Diego at that time. And you know, we started kind of kicking around the idea. And for me, it didn't feel that foreign. My parents, as long as I can remember, had rental properties. So it was just kind of like a thing you did as you got older. And we started looking around at markets and I was like, oh, maybe we could do the Denver market. But at the time, like the, 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 to get into a rental property there felt unaffordable, felt unattainable. And similar in San Diego for you. And because we already had a bit of a network, like my parents had places in Boise, there's a network, there's people who could look, look at the properties that things went wrong. And it was half the price of both San Diego or Denver. It seemed like a place we should start exploring. And then you really dove in to look at the numbers and start to build out networks and relationships there. Just taking one step back, because I had forgotten actually that you, your parents had rental properties. So that was kind of your exposure to real estate, right? Because after all, this is the Real Freedom Podcast. So we are going to talk about a lot about real estate and mm -hmm. the freedom that it offers. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, if it weren't for your parents having rentals, do you think you would have, like, how would you have found it or get exposed to it? I didn't start educating myself on real estate and rentals until after that started to become like, hey, is, is this something we should do? And then I started looking at the Bigger Pockets podcast. And then through there, that completely opened up my mind to what real estate investing potentially could be and how many assets and avenues there are and how it, it made it attainable through education to be able to do something. And I, I guess at the time, I just... Uh, Again, it, it felt familiar because I had grown up around it, but it was only like one, maybe two properties. And so it was never a huge part of their income. I mean, it was part of their retirement, but not really what they talked about. It was just kind of a thing that they had on the side. So it didn't feel all that much different than investing in a 401k or investing in stocks. What are the lessons that you learned from watching them? Because they self-managed, right? Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people starting out, they're tempted myself included, I was tempted to self-manage as well because, gosh, that 8, 9, 10% a month, sometimes even higher on some of our other properties that you pay a property manager on a short-term rental, that can be 20, 25%, like on an Airbnb or VRBO. What are some lessons that you saw from self-managing at that time? And do you think that impacted your decision moving forward to get a property manager? My exposure at home was only the things that went wrong. It was only when there was troublesome tenants. It was only when there was toilets that broke. It was only when we were on a weekend trip and something went wrong and then they had to of course. It. It, you never get to see the good stuff about them having tenants that were there for like eight or 10 years at a time or that there was minimal you know, damage from a, a really good tenant who maybe paid a little bit under market rent, but they, they liked him and so they kept him in. And so for me, there probably was only the downside that was communicated or seen, but it also felt hands-on. It felt like to be there and 
I was still living in Denver. So like I wasn't going to be able to be there every week. And the model I had seen was you need someone who can attend to fixing it yourself. Otherwise you have to hire a property manager. And I knew I didn't want to have my parents doing the property management of it just because I didn't, that, that was a little bit too much uh, mixing family and business for me. So I, I got two questions off that. The first one is if you're only exposed to the negative parts of real estate, which we see often, right? A lot of people are like, well, I don't want to deal with toilets. I don't want to deal with tenants. And even I know quite a few people, you know, quite a few people that still are determined to self-manage. And I just shake my head because I'm like, what you're doing is you're, you're burning the candle at both ends. And ultimately, it's going to ruin your experience in real estate, inevitably. It might be fine for four or five years, but you're right. There's going to be that wedding or that weekend or whatever that you're at and somebody calls and their furnace is out and you got to drop everything and deal with it. So I'm curious if most of the lens that you grew up with around real estate was negative, why did you still jump into it? My biggest reason would be education was that through the Bigger Pockets podcast and other resources, it was possible to see people who were doing it well. And I'll say at the same time that I was starting to get into it, I was also surrounded by other successful professionals. And a couple of the people that I really looked up to, who was my boss at the time, um, and then a coworker, both had real estate. One had uh, moved out from Bakersfield area and he had three or four rentals he picked up while he was doing oil and gas work over abroad, making a really good paycheck. And he talked about that pretty often. And, and again, he enjoyed the nuts and bolts of the finances and how much appreciation and depreciation and how much you could stack properties. And, and he enjoyed the game. And it was fun to see that. And then I had another two other coworkers, actually, who in the matter of the time when I was starting real estate investing, both retired from their engineering careers, one in his late 30s, the other one in his mid 40s, because they had stacked enough rentals to accumulate cash flow. And I think because I had, I had a great job that gave me disposable income, and I was looking for places to put it, I was actively curious about what I could do to potentially grow that. And having those influences around me, it gave me the perspective that not only was this possible, but it was very tangible. And there's people in my life that I knew who weren't just treating it like a side job, who weren't just treating it like another 401k investment. It was their path towards something completely different in life. Man, that is gold. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. We always talk about how you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? And if somebody doesn't have somebody in their inner circle or a coworker or a, a mentor or a manager or somebody that prods you to be curious and invokes that sense of curiosity, there's a tendency to, to get stuck. Why do you think people get stuck or stay comfortable? And if they don't have somebody in their inner circle like that to help expand their thinking of what's actually possible and what they can accomplish, how, how do they do that? Oh, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing is it, it is human nature to expend the least amount of energy possible to get the same result. And it takes conscious effort daily to change your habits, to go on to something else. And nobody's going to do that if you're not presented with the ideas and information that make it possible or that somebody prompts you to do. And we talked about childhood expectation setting earlier. Like if my parents didn't have growing up a, a high expectation of what I could achieve, 
I would have never turned out to be the person I was. And I don't think any of my family would have because the expectations were set that this is something you can do and you have to go. It was very much like you work really hard and you will have a chance to have a better lifestyle than those around you. When I think about that, I've heard, I think Brandon Turner say this quite a few times, like on his podcast, that if you're looking to try to expand your horizon, it's different nowadays than maybe it was 50 years ago, because you have access to unlimited information and you can choose who become your new best friends online. You can choose to follow somebody with a completely different perspective and you can take in that information and gain from their knowledge. And that was probably the biggest thing, I, I guess, I'm coming back to bigger pockets again to say that that was really the gateway into other podcasts. That was the gateway into other books. That was the gateway to more self-development, at least for me. And I think that for anybody who's looking to go down that path, it's not important that you find the right person at the right time. It's just important that you start the process and then you iterate on it based on going down a path. That's easily said, harder to do, right? So I remember taking myself back because we, we bought our first rental property together 50-50, right? We still own it. Mm -hmm. A single family in Boise. Yeah, we should talk You're, about that one. We should. <laughs> that yeah. one has had a lot of fun. So I'll, uh, I want to ask one question about just getting into that deal, and then I'll, I'll let you tell some fun stories about it. But you are what we would call a calculated individual. Like you run operations, right? So you're, you have an engineer brain that is very risk averse, very calculated, easily susceptible to analysis paralysis. Oh, yeah. We see a ton of people fall into this analysis paralysis. How did you go about either arming yourself with enough information or how did you break through that analysis paralysis? Because that is, it's just a part of you to buy that first property. I was terrified. <laughs> You know what? I, I'll say this is that if if I think about what the worst consequence could be of something like this happening, that helps because like if I think what's the absolute worst, the place burns down, I have somebody trip and fall and they sue, like what what place what can I put in place insurance policy wise? What can I put in place process wise with a good property manager to de-risk it and make it something that has a lower downside potential? And so that's how I thought about those. And that's the same way you know, in my engineering career, we dealt with pumping 8,000 PSI near humans. The potential for that to go catastrophically wrong is there every single day. And so all you can do is put processes in place to try to de-risk it. And so for I think- For those of us that don't, that don't know what PSI is, what- Pounds per square what? inch. Think about it like this. You basically have an elephant standing on one square inch of steel. And if you have that, how much damage could that cause if that one piece of steel comes loose and starts flying at a human? They're done. I mean, think about what a bullet does. So when I think about that, it, it is, investing is, is a risk-based business. Doesn't mean I wasn't scared. It really helped having a partner. I don't know if I would have gone through with it just by myself the first time. Well, I feel the exact same way. I mean, that is why we went 50-50 together. You share half the upside. And it's half the risk. It's a way for you to get started and get your foot in the door, especially on an investment like that, where you have a property manager in place. There's not a lot that can go wrong that you're not protected against. So you don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But what are some stories about this first rental that we had that you want to share? Yeah. So I, I think we probably should just talk about the deal that we found, which at that time, 
I didn't know what off-market marketing was. I don't know if you really knew what it was at that time either, but we went MLS. Um, right. We did a, a fantastic job of going out and developing a network and developing a relationship with Corby Goad. And, and that is a relationship that I know you value, I, I value, and it, it still pays dividends today because he's just a great human being. He allowed it to, again, feel like it was less risky because we bought a property, we put an offer in as a backup offer for a property that needed work. When the original one fell out, we were able to get a discounted price on it. I think it, we bought it for what, 207000 yep. And 207000 appraised it at two fifteen. needed new flooring, needed new paint, needed a deck that was restained. It had a chicken coop out back we had to get removed. So a decent amount of work that got put into it. And Corby was willing and able to provide resources and, and help us get that renovation turned around. But it was definitely scary to go through that process from day one. For everybody out there that there's there there's no deals. There's no deals that cash flow. There's no deals. It's like even if you're going on the MLS and you're not direct to seller, which is what, what we do exclusively now because you get way better deals. If you don't have that operation, you have no experience and you're just looking on the MLS, speed gets you deals. Speed gets you deals. So this property fell out of contract and within twelve hours we had already it was back on market within 12 hours, we already had an offer submitted back into them. They accepted right away. For those of you that are saying there's not deals, you just got to make more offers and you got to be timely about your offers. Speed will get you deals for sure. So we own this property. I think it was like a mild rehab. We did have a tenant issue last year though. What happened there? Yeah. So uh, let, let's talk about the progression really quickly until we get to the tenants. So uh, we were able to <laughs> renovate it and, and it wasn't a great cash flowing deal. I mean, at the time, it, I think it maybe broke even, maybe made a hundred bucks year two. I think we made a hundred, 150 a year, except we had to like replace a fence. And so I think that took out all the cash flow. But during that time, like we got lucky, honestly, with a good market. And three years later, we were or four years later, we were able to take and do a cash out refinance on that thing at Right around four hundred thousand, three hundred ninety nine thousand, a value. And I'm sorry, how much? It was, I think, three hundred ninety nine was what it appraised for that we got our cash out refi on. After how many years of owning it? That was five, and that was the second cash out refi because we actually did a full bird the first time and got all but I think seven grand out of it after we renovated it, put money in for the down payment, and then and then cash out refinanced it. And that was only six or eight months after owning. They say compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Or is it ninth? I'm not really sure. <laughs> definitely, definitely owning assets is, is a great way to compound your, your wealth over time. And not only did it allow us to do that, we got home equity line of credit on that thing for investment property that we were able to use and leverage to get the second investment property. Yeah, because now that just gave us access to I think it was like close to thirty or forty thousand more in cash. Well, and that's the most powerful part of real estate, right? I mean, you get there's so many benefits, right? Cash flow, appreciation, loan pay down. You get tax benefits. The number one benefit is leverage. If you're coming with twenty percent down on a property like that, so we bought it at the sake of using round numbers, we bought it at two hundred, and then it, it appraised. A few years ago for 400. So we made 200 grand in equity and we only had to come in with 40K. Think about to make 200K 
on a stock, buying it for 40K, it would have to 5X itself. That's going to take a few decades at least, right? And you got to you got to pick the right one and just hope for the best. So that is the real power of real estate. That's the number one thing is leverage. In addition to the leverage piece, I mean, part of that is that we were able to get into a good market at a good time and ride that wave up and continue to use that leverage to, to build and grow other assets. Like that was a springboard for getting additional properties. Also, it, it improved our cash flow. I mean, now we make... Yeah, it's what close to 550 net after all taxes, insurance, maintenance, capex uh, per month on it. I mean, and we had thought maybe it would maybe it would make two hundred dollars ten years from now. It would just have a lot of pay down by that point. That's all the fun, nice, shiny stuff. What about the bad stuff? What about the real, the truth? Everyone likes to talk about the nice part about owning properties. The unfortunate part about owning properties is that you deal with human situations. We ended up having a gentleman who was older who lived in there and he and his wife qualified to go in. And about five to six months after they moved in, unfortunately, she passed away. And what we didn't realize is the owners and what our property management company uh, maybe didn't realize is that she was his primary caretaker. And after she had passed, he deteriorated quickly to the point where he wasn't able to maintain basic bodily functions and, and move around the house. And we found out that he was about two months behind on payments because we caught it on property management statements. And then we reached out and we're like, what's going on here? They're like, well, we're trying to work with him to try to get government assistance and get some housing for like government assistance to pay back all the back due rent. And the day it was supposed to cut, the property management company called in and said, hey, what happened to this check? And they said, well, we can't pass the check on a deceased person. And they had just found out that a day or two prior to that, he had passed away in the home. And at that point, they had called in the ambulance. I'm not even sure who, who found him or if it was a son or whatever. Just really sad situation. And so it, the impact of that on, on the families that they had to then figure out how to clean up everything in the house, take out everything out, the impact on the property management companies, they were just kind of stuck, not being able to do anything with it until the family had all the stuff out of the house. And the impact on the owner, uh, on us, is that it was negative about $10,000 in either lost revenue from potential rent and in the, the renovations we had to do afterwards. All of that took three to four months without getting a payment to cover the mortgage. If we had not been preparing for that, if we had not been saving up in the good times, we wouldn't have been able to weather the bad time. And I think that's just a, a good note for any of our investments that we make or like if you can't cover when things go bad, that right there could put somebody into default. Yeah. So guys in the state of Idaho, and this, this depends on your state, right? But if somebody dies in your property, you can legally go after their family or next of kin for rents if you want to. Now, I don't know what the likelihood of your chances of actually getting that or not. Or not. That just doesn't feel right, you know, given, given the situation. We chose not to do that. We chose to just write it up as a charitable donation because it just didn't feel like the right thing to do. That's that one in a thousand type of situation. I mean, Corey, you've got how many properties now? I think collectively it's 11 doors. Okay. 11 doors. I've got over 40. Uh, we've never had anyone else die in the property, but once, once you own enough, like weird stuff like this is going to happen. And you got to be prepared. So despite how terrible that situation is, you have to be able to withstand it and 
and see the bigger picture. And a lot of people, which is, is a good question that I want to ask you next is if that happens to somebody in their first or second year of owning real estate and they don't have the cash reserves and it's their first property or second property or whatever, and all of a sudden they have $10,000 in missed rent, they're going to just say, screw it to hell with real estate. And it's a huge mistake. You want to speak about the short-term thinking there? Because I see it often. There's a lot of recency bias that's just hard to overcome as humans. Like I struggle with this all the time, whether it's bringing on someone to the team that has success in the first week and you're like, oh my gosh, that person's great. And then they go three months without a deal and you're like, oh my gosh, what, what's going on with them? There's a bit of chance that goes along with each decision or each investment. And I can say that I personally invested in a uh, private penny stock oil and gas company because there was folks who went over there from my company that were top performers. They think they had a great asset. They talked it up. They were bringing other people over. Six months later, they declared bankruptcy. So what does that equal? That equals $0. <laughs> That's not a $10,000 loss. I mean, it wasn't that much invested. But when that happens, like you can choose, do I ever, do I stop investing in stocks for the rest of my life because I made a bad decision or do I just choose to be smarter and never do that style of decision again? I chose the latter. And I guess when it comes to this, recency bias is going to be really easy to say, yeah, this is how all real estate investing goes. Everything else is just BS. Everything else is just a fairy tale. And the truth is you could just get a little bit unlucky. And yet, if you let that deter you, you will never be able to get the benefits of compounding years and decades of real estate appreciation because you gave up when the first one didn't work. So if you invest in a stock and a company goes belly up, what happens to your money? Yeah, that's a big old goose egg. You get zero dollars and zero cents back. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Good to know. That's okay. not a good return on your investment. <laughs> <laughs> that's not. For our listeners, what are some of our other best uh, tenant stories? You had to take yeah, a deep breath. They must yeah, our first foray <laughs> into, uh, into multifamily investing has been a trip. It has just been a trip. So this is an eight unit that you and I, again, went on 50-50 over in Ontario, Oregon. So a new state, new regulations. This area has had uh, just been underbuilt for the last 40 years. There's not a whole lot of industry. However, there's a population that's moving there, partly because things got more expensive in Boise. And so there's- it's right over the border. I think it was a cold call, actually. I had talked to the owner and he was in our data set because sometimes our data runs over the, the border and he was definitely a distressed owner. And so, so go ahead. when you approached me with this one, I, I don't know if we quite understood what the <laughs> current state of the tenant population <laughs> was over there or what they had going on. We have had- everything from we had to replace a roof because of a windstorm. And at that point, the first roofer we hired didn't cover up the roof, let a rainstorm happen. And then we had water damage into all of the upstairs apartments. When they were trying to fix it, the guy fell through the roof into the apartment with, with a tenant in there. Just to paint that picture, right? You hire a roofer to come replace a roof. I think it was a two or three day job. They yeah. literally... They took all the shingles off and a lot of the sheathing. They literally left it exposed overnight, just open to the air, which I've never heard of before. I've never seen before. And of course it rained. And I remember talking to the roofer and he's like, well, there wasn't any rain in the forecast. Yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, are you kidding me? What are you? So yeah, that, that was a full on lawsuit then. Uh, oh, because but wait, then they there's more. 
But yeah, continue. Because of the way this unit's constructed, there was AC units on the roof. So when the roof got replaced, they removed the AC units. They decided to put them on the neighbor's lot right next door rather than ours. And then the day before, the day before they got everything finished, they had a crane hired up. We get a call that morning saying, where are the AC units? Do you guys move them? And somebody had come in with like a mini backhoe and had stolen three AC units off of the lot next door because they weren't secured in any way. Dude, I forgot about this. So guys, these aren't like the, the wall units that you plug in. These are like huge commercial units that you see like on the top of buildings yeah. that like heat and cool office spaces. They're massive. They have to weigh what? Like 1,500 pounds a ton? Oh, yeah. You're you're not taking them out of there with anything that's not a heavy machinery. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So they take them off to replace the roof. And then somebody just like comes, apparently just comes in with a backhoe and steals them all. What happens next? <laughs> so this is all part of uh, what ends up being a, a nice lawsuit with that, that contractor, the roofing contractor. And this is right as winter is starting. And so now we don't have heating units in the units. So we end up having to buy space heaters and then pay for the electricity bills for the tenants that are still there for, it was like up to 14 weeks or something like that. Cause it was, it was during COVID and everything was backordered. So we couldn't get an AC unit in any, any sooner. Eventually. And, and this is something that you've been really great about not allowing these things just to go by the wayside. And this was something where because we found a lawyer who was willing to work with us and because you persisted on, on going that route, we were able to end up coming up with a settlement with the contractor to compensate for the lost AC units, the damage that was incurred, the lost rent that we incurred because we couldn't put people in units with holes in the ceiling. And at the end of it, I think we ended up paying out of pocket for a new roof and three new AC units, which would have retailed for somewhere around fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars for right around twenty-seven thousand. All out. Yeah, of that was going to be my next question. These things cost how much a piece? They were about ten, just over ten grand. Okay, and then the roof was how much? Uh, it was just shy of twenty to put on. Yeah, so we're talking plus Miss Rent. Yep. Plus we got a few months, multiple months of Miss Rent. You're talking like a 70 to 80 grand thing when it's all said and done in damages. This will be a podcast for a different day, probably multiple podcasts, because I got a lot of good information to share about my experience with lawsuits and contractors and um, some stuff the audience can really take and learn from. I've seen a lot just in my short time already and been a part of, um, had to sue a lot of people that won't do the right thing and neither here nor there. But I think to your point, there's a temptation with most people when faced with that kind of confrontation, it stresses them out too much. And a lawsuit is super stressful and can be very emotionally draining. When there's a lot of money at stake, the decision makes makes it a little easier, right? Because you can't just like take that big of a loss. We have some reserves, but we're not uh, monopoly, uh, working with monopoly money, right? I think it's important if you're in the right and you have proof, Stand your ground. If there's anything that I've learned about working with attorneys and contractors, they have no problem lying about anything. It's pretty crazy what attorneys will write up in letters and, and say about you and lie about you. And that was the case here. Do you remember any of that back and forth about what they said? 
it was multiple months of volleying letters back and forth of nasty calls from the contractor who owned it saying that we were basically trying to scam him out of money saying that we were trying to take advantage of the situation that we had probably stolen those AC units ourselves. And all of that was just a bunch of finger pointing. It, it comes back to, he didn't have enough oversight of his construction crews and it would have been something him as the owner would have never done himself. Yet when you hire folks out, you're responsible being the head of an organization and being a company. And that, that is something that eventually we ended up working out because he, he took ownership of it. So we settled and then we filed. We were able to get the roof for free, basically. And then we had to file insurance on the lost three units, which was granted. So we ended up getting basically a free roof and then three brand new commercial heating and cooling units for, what, a third of the price? Yeah. You had to come out of pocket a little bit. But man, that took it took a toll. That was like eight months of our life where we were super stressed and frantic about what's going to happen. And of course, just like we talked about with that first single family property, that could have been a moment where we were like, screw real estate. This is not worth it. This is our first big, big is relative. It was eight units, but this is our first larger than four unit property. And what's happening in the first year? This is ridiculous, right? But now, how much does that cash flow on a monthly basis? Depending on uh, on the month and expenses, it, it's bringing in after all expenses management, the current mortgage on it somewhere between forty five and sixty five hundred a and month. We've owned that what two years? Uh, two and a half at this point. Yeah, yeah, January twenty twenty one or February twenty twenty one. So if you're cash flowing six k a month, you can uh, withstand a lot of bullshit. We got some other stories with that property. It, it, there's one one or two especially that are worth telling during the remodel of the units. Yeah, so I was going to say for, for context on this, so distressed property, your landlord who does not take care of it at all. He'd had people in there who, I don't know if it would qualify for, for housing standards because of the quality uh, <laughs> of the, what was in there. Like we found mold in almost every single bathroom, every single unit of the eight. Cockroaches. Oh my gosh, completely cockroach infested. And every single unit had to be completely gutted down to the floorboards. Sometimes those were taken out. All the kitchen cabinets, all the covers where you'd have a lot of mouse poo behind, a lot of droppings back there too. And so they had to do extermination of that, of roaches. And over the period of two years, eventually we got them all turned over. But in the meantime, there was one, I think it was like one of the first or second units. It was one of the first units. We were looking there and they're like, there's this weird spot in the floor that doesn't match anything else. It looks like somebody cut a hole through the floor into the crawl space. It, and like a trap door. Like a trap right? door. Like, like a dungeon into the wood floor, right? Like a, like yes. a rectangle cut out. Yeah. Yep. A hardwood floor cut it through the baseboard down into the crawl space. And they pulled it up and they looked down there and we just got a call from our property management company saying, we're not sure what's down there, but there's a bunch of stuffed animals and a lump underneath a blanket. And we're not really sure what to do with it. So we called the cops. Dude, do you remember getting those? <laughs> First of all, obviously <laughs> some drugs were involved, the drug usage was involved there, right? Like somebody had literally taken a bandsaw, dug yeah. a trap door through their wood floor. Like this wasn't like a handle or an access to a crawl space. 
No. They literally dug a hole through the floor and put stuffed animals and stuff down there. And I remember getting the pictures in the email from the police of like a scene out of a horror film, like little Care Bears and like in dim lighting, like down there in the dirt in the crawl space. And like then these mounds. Okay. I thought it would be a funny prank on Corey. I had this recorded, but I deleted it because I, I felt so bad after doing it. But uh, I, uh, <laughs> I got the call first from the cops of like, hey, we went and checked it out. We dug up the mounds and they were cat bones. And so, so someone had like buried their cats down there. And I was like, oh, my God. Because obviously when there's mounds and like animals and stuff, you, you think, okay, there could be something worse going on here. You assume the worst. And uh, so I thought it'd be a fun idea. I call Corey and I'm like, hey, <sighs> dude, you're never going to guess what they found down there. And you were like, oh, my God, what? And I, <laughs> I could hear you on the other side. And dude, I was I was trying so hard not to laugh, but I was just like, man, they found some dead babies down there, man. And you go, what? And then I just start busting out laughing, and I'm like, I'm I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I can't believe I I went to that like length to to break you, but either. <laughs> You're just thinking the whole time, what an asshole. Like, for that moment, you're like, we've got what at our property now? After the roof? After the lawsuit? After the air conditioning? Yeah. No. Oh, my gosh. And just to add to that story, you didn't you didn't crack up laughing right away. There was a very long, awkward pause. You were able to hold your breath as I started to try to, like, game plan. What do we do next? Who do we need to call? I think we need to get a lawyer involved. <laughs> and then you cracked up laughing. Yeah, Dude, it was one. Of, um, it was one of those jokes, you know. Like, have you ever like scared your siblings or your wife, like hiding around a corner or something? Oh yeah, yeah, all the time. Have you ever done it like so bad where they like jump and like slip and fall or like you feel bad? It was so good that it was like past the point of being funny. That's yes. how I felt when I did that to you. And so then after that, I was like, I can't, I can't do anything like that for a long time. <laughs> I felt so bad. <laughs> Now we can laugh about it. <laughs> yeah. The last thing closing out that property, when we were rehabbing one of the units, they also found something behind the drywall uh, of one of the units. What did they find? Yeah. So um, I was just talking to the contractor the other day and asked him if this was the worst situation he'd ever seen. He said, yep, <laughs> that's still the worst. More, And he's How the same one. He? How old is he? He's in his 50s. He's in his fifties. He's the same okay. one who found the who found the stuffed animals in the mountains downstairs too. And he was renovating the bathroom, and right behind where the door swung open, the door handle had poked a hole in the wall. And he start he looked his head and he found something in there. So he started like pulling it out, and then pulling it out. And over time, the prior tenant had completely stuffed the cavity in this wall with used tampons and toilet paper. Oh, and so he of it. He rips out the wall and sends me a photo of it congealed together as basically insulation 
in between these <laughs> in I between mean, the frame. How, how many are we talking? Uh, I mean, it was it was a two foot high block in between eighteen inch studs. That's a lot of menstrual cycles. High enough, <laughs> high enough that he could he could start to see it through the hole. That's the only reason he even knew it was there. Otherwise, it'd still be festering in the wall. Wow. Okay. So basically, through that sequence of events and everything we've talked about up to this point, everybody is scared to death to get into real estate by now. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you talk about we we literally have had uh, we've had cat bones, we've had uh, a death, we've had different bodily fluids in multiple locations on properties. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong, and and this is just like what humans cause. This isn't even potentially what could happen, you know, through hailstorms or wind or anything like that. Like th- there's a there's an actual cost to this stuff. Yeah, but to and that yet, point, we had property managers the whole time through both of these things. And so the daily communication, we didn't have to be a part of. So in that sense, it saved us a lot of, I mean, it, it would have been way worse if we had to handle all this, sh- all these shenanigans, but. Oh my um, God. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. And yet it was manageable because there was a team and the team had been through some of the stuff, not all of it yet. And knew how to handle it. They knew how to handle when we got that eight unit and in the first couple of months, there was family members there who were feuding. There were family members who were bringing over uh, guns and they had uh, some, some drugs on the location and they were able to get them evicted um, without having to you know pay them to leave because they, they violated the, the tenant laws. So that kind of stuff of having a team that's in place made all the difference on that unit. Even through everything else that went wrong, having the right people in place who knew what to do was, was the biggest difference in, in that being successful today versus it being a complete disaster. Yeah. In addition to that, that with all the bad stuff that comes with C, it's not really a D class, but I mean, we're making it sound terrible. It's not really a D class property, but it's definitely a C class property. Housing assistance, section eight, our property manager, although a little bit pricier than we'd like, is an expert at getting housing assistance and that's guaranteed rent. So even though it's in Oregon, we don't want to be landlords in blue states because the tenant landlord laws, they're very tenant favorable. Uh, Having that guaranteed rent from the housing assistance, there's like three or four different ones of them. There's section eight, there's Oregon housing assistance. There's like county housing assistance. There's all kinds of programs that we can get guaranteed rent from. So. A lot of people shy away from that, but honestly, it's a, it's a, it can be very, very lucrative getting that guaranteed rent. And then they're guaranteed increases too, on top of that. That has definitely saved our bacon while some of that other stuff was going wrong. And we had some tenants not paying, having that reliable income come in, kept, kept everything afloat. Yeah, absolutely. And now there, there's even situations where we're getting above market rent because of the housing assistance, because the housing assistance allows X percent uh, increase per year, and it's it's pretty high. So obviously, you got to deal with the rent control in Oregon, which I believe is you can't raise it more than 9% a year, right? But if the housing assistance is paying for 3 to 5% a year, and you're doing that every year, you're going to be able to keep up with whatever rents are, so or or even higher. Yeah, in, in Oregon, it's a benchmark based on inflation. And so this last year, we actually had, I think, the biggest in history. It was like 13 or 14% potential oh, right. rent increase. 
and then the year prior it was nine. And so we'll see what it's like in the future. Um, yet, if you have a property management company that's on top of it, or you are yourself, as long as you're maxing that out every year, you're probably going to do fine. Like you're not going to get too far behind over time. And and that's what helped in this situation. We started out most of the rents in that unit were anywhere between five and seven hundred. And now after renovation, because we got new tenants in, we put more into the property. Um, our, our, I think our lowest rent, we still have one unit at eight seventy. And then everything else is uh, eleven hundred to fourteen hundred right now, so almost double what we were getting before. Yeah, that's big time. That's big time. Just to be clear, though, if you're going to deal with Section Eight tenants or housing assistant tenants, I would not self manage those in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I'm also against that for single families and multi families. There's ways to do it if you're experienced, but I'm talking about for your your new person to real estate. Do not even try doing that yourself. Um, there's also some legalities that you got to be careful about of who qualifies, who doesn't, can't discriminate against certain tenants. So just be careful about that stuff. All right. Um, switching gears. I wanted to talk a little bit about you're an engineer. Uh, we had been talking for a while. You own a few properties. What then brings you to Offer Now Idaho and, and talk about that transition? Yeah, that was quite a whirlwind. Uh, so you know, eight years in an engineering profession. And then really what the biggest thing is wanting to make a change and, and go for a lifestyle and having it kind of align with changes in, in my career. At that point in time, I loved my engineering career. I, I really enjoyed the work I was doing. I enjoyed the people I was with. Um, and I thought we had an impact on the Colorado community. And I enjoyed that. During COVID, my mental model got broken a bit. At the time, I had always been rated really highly. The company had been on a progression towards uh, management. And every year I was rated above above average, which was, gave me the sense that I was in a really good position with the company. Well, when you're not in control of the company, you're not really in a good position with the company. And when I say that, COVID hit, the price of a barrel dropped down to the 20s. The company went on a freeze. They furloughed quite a few folks and they put everybody else on halftime. And so at that point, because of just the position I was in and where the impact was to my side of the organization, it didn't matter where you were rated. Everybody on my team was either furloughed or put on part-time. What, what does it mean to be furloughed, Corey? You are basically put on administrative leave. You get no pay. You are waiting there and, and they allowed uh, health benefits to stay, but you get no additional compensation for that period of time. They're just sent home. And what was what was their justification for doing it? Just that they couldn't, because it's worth understanding, like when you work in corporate America or you work for a company of that size, it seems kind of odd, right? The, the price of oil tanks and then you also have COVID. It sounds like they were just in a money pinch. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. I mean, when the price of your of your product drops by 75 to 80%, uh, all of a sudden you're not making cash like you used to. And so they were not in a great liquidity position beforehand. And this put them in an extreme pinch. So if I step back and I look at it, they had a choice, which is we either lay off a lot of our staff right now, or we say, we don't know where the economy is going to go. This COVID thing's new for all of us. Or instead, we're going to have to make some really tough decisions to limit our capital expense while we don't have much revenue coming in. We're going to run at a deficit and we'll hopefully be able to bring people back on when something changes with COVID. And so that's the choice that, they that, made. How vague of a response is that, though? 
like when things well, change with COVID, that could be a month, yeah. that could be multiple years. Yeah. And, and, and think back to that time, which is strange now that we're all flying on planes, going out to restaurants and like you could do whatever. At that time, there was just a lot of fear and a lot of unknown. And oh, so yeah. all of a sudden they sent everybody home. They tried to keep some operations going. Everything just kind of shut down in the world for a short period of time. And it was during that period that they made this decision. And uh, the, the impact on me was that I got put on, on half time for about three months. And during that period, not only was it half time, half pay, it was still the majority of the work because all of a sudden our staff had got cut in half. And so <laughs> it's like, we need people to pick up all the slack while having that happen. And it was, it just kind of broke my mental model about like, okay, well, what does this mean for the future? Is this just going to happen again? Do they, obviously they don't care. Well, they were in a financial pinch and they had to do what they had to do. But that did kind of sever my own mental model about that and got me really interested in what you were doing right. And you were seeing a ton of success in real estate. And we'd had these good things happening with the assets we'd purchased. You compound that with um, my wife is a nurse. She got put from her oncology unit into a COVID unit, completely burnt her out because they did not have proper PPE. They had longer working hours. Uh, and so she was just like done with wanting to be in that profession in that state at that time. And we ended up having this plan for a while where she wanted to come back out and work at a California hospital. Um, they have a nurses union, great pay for nurses and better working conditions. And so she started applying for jobs and ended up getting a job working at the Stanford hospital um, in the Bay area. And during that period of time, I got brought back on right as she was getting her full-time acceptance and so we said, you know what, we're going to have to make this work while you go out there, um, her family's in that area, and I'll fly back and forth and we'll figure out how we're going to make this work for the period of time. And so my life transition was that I was, you know, my, my better half was moving out to two states away. We were allowed to work from home. They brought us back on full time, changed up the organization. My company got bought by a bigger company. Tons of churn, tons of change. What's happening in in uh, real estate still going up. And then for the next year and a half or about a year, it was a period of like, I don't know where I'm going to go in life. I don't really know what I'm going to do. I got still doing similar jobs at, at work. My scope had changed a little bit though. And we got completely new management. And it came a time where in late 2022, early 2023, they told us that we were going to have to go back in office full-time. I had been pretty much living in California, commuting back out to Colorado once every six weeks to two months. And I go in for like three to five days at a time, show my face, do whatever we need to do, and then pop back out to California. And when they said we were going to have to come back in three days a week, there was really a decision I had to make, which was, what do I want my life to look like in the future? And it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but during this period, I'd had a chance to get to know my new bosses at the new company who are complete company men, fantastic individuals, but they lived and died by the company. And, and it was Chevron. And so Chevron bought the company when they said, you're moving every two to four years and you'll live where you need to live. Like, that's it. Like, I look at where my bosses and my boss's boss and my boss's boss were, and they had a ton of company stock tied up. They were going to have solid retirements, but they also moved their family every two to four years, and they didn't really have ownership over what they wanted their life to look like. And I realized yeah, they like, didn't, that's they didn't have a choice, right? 
Life was happening not, not, to them. Yeah, not to continue to progress. They could have. They could have at one point just said, nope, I'm staying here. But that was a signal that that was the end of your career progression. And that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for ownership over my life. I was looking for ownership over my time. And I said, you know what? Married, don't have kids. My wife has a great job. If there's any time in my life when I'm going to say I don't want to regret not making a decision to try to live the life I want, it's right now. And so then um, luckily, because you were growing the company at Offer Now Idaho uh, at the time in, in spring of 2022, um, I was able to join full time and it completely changed you know, what I was doing, who I was working with. And it was, a, it was a going from an engineering career to working, building and running a sales and marketing company. Complete change in, <laughs> in perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. if I were to answer your first question, looking back in the future, I would say probably one of my biggest failures was ignorance that how hard it would be to run and build a sales and marketing team without having run and built sales and marketing team before because it is so much different than your engineering corporate job. We talk about this all the time, right? When you're dealing with a small intimate team and specifically salespeople, your, your turnover is high and or higher than what you're used to. And if you come from this small little pond of engineering only school, Colorado School of Mines, where everybody is of just just to get a 2.0 and graduate there, like you got to have, you got to have some cojones, right? To make it and then go into the real world where it's like, oh, not everybody is like that. And now we actually have to figure out what motivates people and people management and how to hire, how to fire and everything that goes along with that. I imagine for you, that's a period of especially in the last year of a lot of self-doubt mixed with personal growth. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I'm sure that you went through and are still going through a lot of that same piece. I have never professionally failed so much as I failed in the last year and a half. It's just once after another after another. Uh, yet it's learning from that that allows for growth and going Can through those experiences. Yeah. Let me, I want to ask a, a little bit deeper of a question. Do you remember like the previous version of yourself? Can you place yourself into that mode of thinking and remember what that was like? Or is it, is it kind of blurred? Hmm. Let me see if I understand the question and I'll answer by just saying maybe a few snapshots in time. I'm not sure if I could go back into the same mentality. Normally what it comes back to is are comments that I made. I don't know if you've ever done this before where like you, maybe you remember having a heated conversation with your parent about something that you felt very strongly about. And then you look back on it in the future and you're like, oh, I see why they said that. Oh, I see why maybe my perspective as an 18 year old wasn't as informed as theirs was. <laughs> and that's often how I feel about it when I look back and I think about uh, comments about either management or I think about how the business was run and how uh, compensation adjustments were done at a corporation. Uh, whether it was you know, egalitarian across the board, everybody gets this kind of raise or they'd have to pick people and, and what was justified and what was fair. The way that I thought the business worked versus how I, I perceive it to work now. Yeah, 
it's not that I can put myself back in there. I can just usually realize, wow, I was an idiot. I didn't know anything about it. And I've learned so much more now. I guess similar question back to you. I mean, what is there a couple times in your life that you can look back and see a different version of yourself and how you reacted in a situation and, and think about what you would probably change about that now? The cliche, everything happens for a reason, like in the literal sense, the challenges and failures that we we go through define who we are and who our future self is. So I think for me, it's like a matrix moment. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so for me, the thought of going back into an environment where I don't have freedom and control in what I'm doing makes me want to, it's just unthinkable. It's unspeakable. Like it, it would cause me so much mental anguish that I wouldn't be able to do it unless it was for somebody that I viewed, it was somebody that I respected and that was logical. And maybe that's just, that's, that's a little bit of my own biases and beliefs, right? I've, I never really had a good manager. I worked for three different companies. I never had a good manager. Then I never had a good manager's manager. And so when I looked up the chain, I was like, I could be them. I could do a better job than them. And so the ultimate prove it moment is when you bet on yourself and you go out on a limb and you, and you start being, you start thinking of your present self as the future version of yourself. And then your actions start to align with the future version of yourself. And then so, before you know it, you actually become the future version of yourself. And then you outwork your self-doubt and you, all those failures and small wins stack on each other. And you actually become the version of yourself that you always wanted to be. Now, that's a long way to answer that question, but it all starts with getting uncomfortable. And I think what, I, what I'm learning from your story and what's similar to my story too is like, there's a certain amount of pain that has to happen for you to then take that first leap and first step into the zone of uncomfortability. And then when you take the second and third step and you get that first or second small win, when you're in the zone of uncomfortable and you're like, oh, I can do this. And that confidence starts building, man, you become an unstoppable force. You become unemployable at that point because then your, your belief in yourself actually becomes true. And I'm, I'm sure that you felt that in the past year with a lot that we've been through. A lot of personal growth and personal change. And it comes back to, I like the, what, what you said there, that it really requires a, a vision from the leader. And you have to be able to broadcast that for other people who want to succeed to be able to follow you. And if I would put it this way, like there's a lot of folks out there who are passionate about what they do, but there's not a lot of people who are just passionate leaders. And mm. that is hard to come by. And like, you can be really good at your, whatever it is, sales, marketing, engineering. But if you're not also committed to developing people, it's really hard to have a vision about where you're going. And like, that's what people follow. That's like, there's a reason people follow Elon Musk, not just because he's a really hard worker, but he definitely has a huge vision and people can rally behind that to, to follow them. And it's something, honestly, I want to commend you on because you, you attract people who want the vision that you're casting and the growth. And that's, uh, it's tangible. I mean, we just had a offer letter sent out to what could be two of our best hires ever in the company today that were accepted. And that wouldn't be possible without a vision. I guess just circling that back around to your original question, 
not that I would use the term unemployable. I would just say that the version of myself now is so much more aware of where I lack deficiency and where I need to grow. And I can tell that because I've been through the failure of trying to learn what it's like to grow a sales and marketing team. I'm curious, when you tell people, what's, what's the biggest thing you've learned in the past year and a half? I've learned that there's levels. And we as humans start to think that, and it's probably ego, honestly, but we start to think that we are better than we are. We're further ahead than we are. We start to get naive and we start to overestimate our learning curve and our ability to grow. And it's all the little things. It's all the little things, man. Like, I know we'll do a separate podcast on our business and all the, all the things that we've found and improved on in the last year. But like, it's all the little boring, stupid things. How fast are you talking to a lead? Are you even attempting to contact the lead? Is the lead coming in, you know, in the right format? Or how do people know who's responsible for reaching out to the lead? Who then meets with the lead on the appointment? What do they say? Like all these little things. And I talk about this. I talked about this on another podcast, but I think when you have instant success, it's actually worse because then you get ahead of your skis and you have ultimately it leads to a bigger failure than if you struggle in the beginning. And that becomes your new expectation set. And so you know that that is your foundation of expectation and that every result will come from, from that foundation. It's a much more sustainable model than if you just have instant success and then think that it's going to keep happening. To summarize, I think it's just really about doing all the little things, the dumb little things. And that's what's going to take the company from a seven-figure company to an eight-figure company. It's just all the little stuff. It's not a, a shiny object or a magic CRM or, you know, it's going to be people. It's going to be process. It's going to be training, which is exactly what your skill set is, what, what has helped us uh, so much in the past year. I mean, gosh. Isn't it crazy to look back at our stats last year and <laughs> you get jaded a little bit about when you got to improve this, we got to improve this, we got to improve this. I think you especially do a really good job of the gap and the gain, which is a, a great book that both of us really like of, of constantly looking in the rear view about how much we've improved instead of always looking about what the next milestone is. Yeah. You've got a couple of comments in that in the last couple of monologues from, uh, Dan Sullivan and Dr. Benjamin Hardy, which fantastic people to listen to and read from. They uh, they definitely have a perspective that uh, is helping me grow. It's one of those books where I feel like I could probably read it every couple of years and take out completely different le lessons, even though the words didn't change. Just it, it hits where I was at in a different spot in life. You know, I think about that when I think about like where the market's going and where we're headed, maybe. And it's been a challenge. I mean, I got into full time real estate at the peak of prices in 2022. Great time. Fantastic timing. I also started at my old company um, on the month where the stock price was the highest in its history. And I <laughs> listened to folks who told me I should be investing in the company stock because they'd made such great returns on it in their time there. So apparently I have, a, I have a pattern of this. But the good part about that is that when you get in at times that are rough, it makes the times that are easy seem easy and you, you learn all your challenging lessons up front. 
just like you were saying uh, about coming in and reading the psychology of money. He does have a story in there about a guy who picked stocks and basically picked winners during the Great Recession and then eventually ended up broke living on the streets because he thought he was un invincible here, invincible. He picked up great stock at the right time and then tried to repeat the pattern by doubling down. If you do that long enough, the house is going to win. Yep. I love that you said that though, because what, what you're doing in the hard times is you're building skills to get through the hard times. The easy times don't require as much skill. More people can just be successful because they're in the game. To be successful in a recession, in a down market, it requires an immense amount of skill and an immense amount of volume and persistence. That's what you build during that time. Yeah. And bring it back to like the real estate market and the opportunity that's there. Like, I don't think we're anywhere near the pain being over in the real estate market. We did have a 20% drop or more in the Boise market between June or July of 2022 and January of 2023. You saw it run back up, it's headed back down again. And we're probably headed into something that's a lot worse just from a macroeconomic perspective than the last 18 months. But to your point, if if the skill sets you learned allowed you to be successful, allowed us to be successful, which I think it has by getting really good at creative finance, by adding other disposition streams, there's a lot of opportunity ahead. And that's what I'm really excited about when it comes to the skill sets that I've learned in the last two years is creative financing, how to structure deals, and then how to think about that when it can not just be like single family homes or duplexes. You could structure that same kind of creative financing for any kind of asset, any kind of business and make make things work. 100%. Well, I got I got two final questions for you. Number one, I'm glad you brought up your, your market's uh, prediction somewhat. It's interesting that you think there's more pain to come. So my, my question for you, uh, and you have to answer this straight up is what do you think the next, <clears throat> let's call it the next year, where are we going to see home values in Boise? Are they up, down, sideways? Relative to October 25th of 2023, here's my incredibly inaccurate prediction. Love it. I, I'm, I bet that when we look back year over year, you're going to be probably negative 5% over what Interesting. I actually think the opposite. So that's interesting. Shows and, how and much my, we know. <laughs> exactly. I, I can say with 100% certainty that that is 100% inaccurate. <laughs> it will not be exactly that. <laughs> yeah, it's a bizarre situation right now, right? With low inventory and interest rates so high. Uh, yeah, a lot of it depends on what happens with rates, right? So who knows? Who knows? But like you said, if you got creative finance in your tool belt, if you got novations, if you got different ways to make deals and do deals, in any market cycle, man, you are, you're cooking with gas then when market, the market comes back. And that's what we've seen in the past year with, honestly, with market share, I can't even think of another wholesaler or another group, not even another wholesaler, but just another group that's doing even half of the volume of deals that we're doing in Boise because all of our competition died off. They didn't have creative, creative finance. They didn't have some of these other things. So well, last question for you. What's some advice that you would give to somebody, given all your experience of what you've been through? How does someone break through into that zone of uncomfortability or take that first step of action? What advice do you have somebody to get started to start taking control of their life? I know that you uh, also follow Alex Hormozzi a lot, and he's got uh, 
He's got a couple content pieces about stacking wins and using that confidence and that proof that you can do it to build the next thing. Real estate is not a get rich quick scheme, no matter how many times people say it is. Uh, you can get lucky on a few and maybe it'll feel like you get rich quick over years, but it's never a good get rich quick scheme. It takes a hell of a lot of work and effort. So if, if whatever it takes for you to like start to make that first cold call is like you making your bed in the morning and then telling yourself you're going to make breakfast and then getting one number and calling one time, or if it's joining a Facebook group and seeing people saying that they're doing cold calling or meeting up at a place one night and being terrified of doing it, whatever that one win is that gets you to take that step, do it and tell yourself that was the proof you got there. And then afterwards, that'll compound as long as you just don't quit. And it will eventually get you to a place where you're starting to see maybe not success, but just confidence in yourself that you're able to do the thing and it's less scary. And eventually that will lead to success. It's just going to take a lot of effort. All right, man. Well, uh, that's fantastic. I think, gosh, even, even I could use that advice uh, quite often. So way to be uh, a fantastic first guest and start uh, episode one on the right foot. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one.